0: The rest of us, uh, let's go ahead and turn back to Psalm 47. Psalm 40, or excuse me, Psalm 47. Genesis 47. Uh, In our time this morning, Genesis 47. There are some things and events in life that are indelibly marked in our minds throughout our whole life there are not things easily forgotten one occasion for me was a, a an event when I was pastoring in Fitchburg there was a lady there by the name of Elaine who had been married uh, lost her husband had remarried man that she remarried while I was there uh, passed away so she had been living by herself for almost a year and was beginning to have some struggles with her health recognizing some things weren't quite going right and one Saturday night I got a phone call that she had gone into the hospital and uh, the doctors were going to check her out and uh, i Told her, listen, I'm not going to be able to be there till Sunday afternoon. I'm going to take care of the church service and then be up to see you on Sunday afternoon. Went through the morning service, uh, got done, had some lunch, and then went up to the hospital there. I got to the room and I saw the family walk out. And the family was upset. It was obvious, they were in tears. And I walked in and the doctor was still there and she looked at me and she just said this, I've been told that I've got cancer throughout my body and I'm going to be dead in a few weeks. And I said, so how you doing with getting information like that? She says, I'm fine. She goes, I'm okay with that. She goes, we're all going to face death sometime. And she goes, I now know the course I have set for me. And she goes, I'm okay with that because the Lord has been with me all of my life and He's not going to fail me on through the course of death here and I'll be in His presence forever. I mean, that was a statement to me as a preacher To have that happen where you have a doctor who's trying to figure out how to console a woman who has just found out she's got cancer throughout her body and only has a couple weeks to live family members who are just completely distraught and literally coming in the window is sunlight on her on the bed and she is just beaming and making a statement like this that i am fine because christ has been my savior and he's going to take me right into his presence I'm okay. We have an event like this: an individual that knows he's dying, whether it was by divine revelation or just by reading uh, what and uh, how he was feeling. I mean, this is an interesting thing that when you read in in verse number 1 of chapter 48, you find the statement that Joseph has this report that his father is sick. It's the first time in Scripture that sickness is ever mentioned. He had people dying, but we never have sickness mentioned. The first time this happened, maybe it was because of the fact that he was sick and he just knew this sickness is going to end in death. Whatever the case may be, joseph begins to take uh, or jacob begins to take up responsibility uh for dealing with things before he dies and if we were to think about the life of jacob we wouldn't necessarily highlight this point in his life if we were talking about his faith or these type of things you could think of a lot of things that jacob did and it required faith on his part But do you realize that the New Testament takes this event in Jacob's life and highlights this as the highlight of his faith? Say, how do you know that? Hebrews chapter 11 is what we call the hall of faith. You go through there and there's all sorts of people listed there and the faith that they had that's an example for us on how we ought to live our life by faith. And you think about all the information we have about Jacob in the book of Genesis, going uh, from chapters 26 and on through uh, to this point, and he eventually dies. So almost half the book of Genesis has stories about Jacob's life. It only chooses this event to show his faith. Hebrews 11 and verse number 21 says this, By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. So what we have here is what the Scripture in the New Testament highlights as the peak or the climax or the best point of where we see Jacob's faith. It's a display of this. is what we just read this morning and it's dealing with his death and for us this morning i am I'm, I'm theming uh, the, the theme for this passage is just simply this for us to gain something from this is this for seeing their death believers in faith prepare for their future for seeing their death believers in faith prepare for their future What you see in verse uh, 27 to 31 of chapter uh, 47 is that believers take care of their future arrangements. What you have here is that when uh, you find this event taking place, uh, it is uh, interesting to find out that Israel, and the idea in verse 27 is that it's Jacob dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They had possessions therein, grew, multiplied exceedingly, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt, 17 years you go why is that important because in the story that we have of the life of jacob you have 17 years someplace else you go. what do you mean we know how old joseph was when he left canaan It tells us he was 17 years old. He lived in the land of Canaan 17 years before his brothers sold him off uh, to the land of Egypt. And here we have uh, Jacob who's living his life and then eventually moves to Egypt. And Joseph takes care of his dad for 17 years at the end of his life. Just as Jacob would have taken care of Joseph for the first 17 years of his life. And so you have this kind of a bookend on the life here, but what Jacob does is that he calls in Joseph that he's knowing that he's going to die. He called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, I pray thee, put thy hand on my thigh, deal kindly and truly with me, and bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. I don't want to be buried in this land because this is not the land promised to our family. He is remembering this, verse 30, I will lie with my fathers and you shall carry me out of Egypt to their burying place. He's going, Abraham, my grandfather, Isaac, my father, are all buried in the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. And I want to, as a testimony of faith, to be buried back in that land, not here as a statement that I believe the statements of God that the children or my children are going to be ones who inherit that land and live there, and it's going to be their land forever, the land that's promised to them. And in faith, he comes to his son Joseph, who has the ability to carry out whatever he wants because he's second in command in Egypt. He comes to him and says, make sure when I die, don't bury me here take me back to the land of promise as a statement that i believe what god says what he's declared that this land will be mine one has said this by faith jacob stakes his destiny in the promised land not in an embalmed body in the best land of egypt I mean, he's one who has a forward-looking attitude in life. He's basing his life and faith on the promises of God. Things that he hasn't seen, but he is just set and confident that they're true. He's got confidence in it because not of, of his own ability to work up certain things. No, he knows he's got a God who does things that are always true, always right. He carries out what he's declared he always does that i mean jacob if we were to look at the commentary of hebrews chapter 11 on all of the patriarchs abraham and isaac and jacob it makes a statement about them that these all died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city." I mean, what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob realized, though they were promised a land to live in, that there was a promise even beyond that of an eternal city. These are men who had lived their lives in tents, going from location to location, not putting up anything permanent. In fact, the only thing that permanently was had by Abraham was a grave. He bought a cemetery plot. That was it moving from place to place, but these individuals were promised there's a land that I'm going to give you and it'll be your land forever. And they weren't just merely looking for a plot of land, they realized that this is a promise of an eternal city that they would be able to dwell in. And so Jacob, by simply stating, I want to go back to that land, that promised land, it wasn't something that, you know, I want to be buried in the homeland and it just makes warm, fuzzy feelings. No, he realizes God has promised him something even beyond that promised land. A heavenly city that he would dwell in, that was builder and maker, as Hebrews 11 says, was God. He looked forward to that. So when he's coming to his son here, uh, Joseph, and telling him, don't bury me in Egypt, he is looking forward in faith that, yes, my children will one day own a physical land, but I'm looking forward to a time where there will be a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God what he was doing was he was making arrangements he's taking the the responsibility to make sure these things get carried out that even in the end of his life there's a testimony to his faith send my body back to that land i don't want to be buried here because i believe what god has said so he takes care of his future arrangements and for us believers should take care of their future arrangements. But you see in uh, verse 1 of chapter 48 that believers point others around them to their future. What goes on here is kind of, uh, as we read through it, some ceremonial things that you might be missing as you read through it there's two things that go on in this chapter 48 is that joseph excuse me jacob adopts joseph's sons as his own sons okay they're no longer considered to be joseph's sons at this point because jacob takes them up as his sons And secondly, there's a blessing that he gives them beyond the fact that he's adopted them. He also gives them a blessing. So there's an adoption ceremony that goes on at the beginning of the passage, and then there's a blessing that takes place at the end. That's what's going on in this story. We're not used to the culture and the things that go on here, but that's what's taking place. What happens is this, is that Joseph comes with his sons, and, and realize this, how old his sons are at this point. Don't picture them as, as Joseph having a hand on both of them and going and walking them along. They're at least 20 years old. I mean, Joseph had these sons long before Jacob ever showed up in Egypt. We know Jacob's been there 17 years. They're probably 20 years old. So they're young men that Joseph is bringing in to the presence of their grandfather. And what takes place is this is that Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob, sits up on the bed. You see this in verse two. He's not very strong, but he gets up and he strengthens himself enough to get up to, to be one who can forcefully and clearly do what he's about to do. And he recounts the fact that God had been good to him. Verse 3, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz. You go, where's that? Bethel. Remember where the ladder took place, the angels going up and down. That's at Bethel. That's what he's referring to. That God Almighty appeared unto me at Bethel in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful, and multiply thee. I will make thee a multitude of people, and give this land to thy seed forever for an everlasting possession. We went through that story. When Jacob leaves the land, he's got nothing but the staff that he's carrying and the clothes on his back no family no wife no nothing and for Jacob when he comes back to the land he comes back to this place of Bethel and he offers a sacrifice to God you go why because he remembers the fact that God promised him I'm going to multiply you out well he comes back to the land and by the time he gets back to the land he has 12 sons and at least one daughter he's got a big family And it's just the start of what God has done for him. But you say, wasn't his family big enough? Why does he suddenly have to adopt Joseph's sons? And it seems to be at play here that Jacob is not too happy with some of his sons. I mean, we've had stories of what they've done. Verse five, he makes a statement: Thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto me in the land of Egypt, or unto thee in the land of Egypt, before I came unto thee in Egypt, are mine, as Reuben and Simeon are mine. And he's kind of hinting at the fact that he's not happy with Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn; he should be the leader of the family. But you say, what did he do? He went and uh, slept with his father's servant maid servant you say well who's simeon well simeon and levi we have to remember are the sons who went through and wiped out a whole town deceived them and you say well they were just getting justice for what happened that's too much justice for what they got back taking individuals lives because their sister had been violated and they wipe out a whole town of innocents. and Jacob is just kind of saying I've got some sons that should be leaders Reuben the firstborn should be the one that leads he's not Simeon and Levi not all that great I, I need some sons to replace those sons not that I'm going to get rid of them, but I need sons who will take up leadership in the family that these sons have kind of gotten rid of. And what he does is that he declares to them that they are going to receive uh, an inheritance with their, and it's, it's surprising here, they're going to be co-inheritors with their uncles. They're going to receive the parts of the inheritance the division of all the goods that jacob has and the possessions that he had they're going to receive an equal amount of this but what you're also going to find this as you read through this they're going to receive a double portion of this you read this uh, as you go through and you find the fact in the story that he is saying that they are going to receive a double portion you go who received a double portion of an inheritance it was the oldest The oldest of the family and say, for instance, in this family of 12, you would have had all that Jacob had divided up into 13 portions. The firstborn son would receive two portions. Everybody else would receive just one portion of that inheritance. That was what it meant when you got a double portion of the inheritance. These boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, are going to take up and get a double portion of the inheritance. They are both going to receive uh, more than the other brothers are. Now, you say, why did Jacob do this? It's probably because he has a soft spot in his heart for Joseph and Benjamin. You go, why? Because Joseph and Benjamin were children of his beloved wife, Rachel, I mean he mentions her in this story he talks about the fact that your descendants of Rachel my he doesn't say it my favorite wife but they are the grandchildren of that and he just kind of goes I wish I had more sons through Rachel but she died an untimely death so I'm giving you the opportunity to be sons uh, to me and receive a portion of the inheritance that you wouldn't have received if you were just merely a grandson of mine. So you have this verse, he adopts Joseph's sons. But then you have this section that kind of gets a little strange here, but there's a formality that's also going on here. Uh, You look at verse number 8, and there's a weird thing that goes on here. Verse 8, Israel beheld Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? You're kind of going, wait a second granddad's here doesn't recognize his own grandchildren granted he is blind we're told that he is really at the point he can't see anything you're sort of kind of going well he can't see him no he's not saying i don't know who these are who's standing next to you i've kind of gotten confused in all this time that you're standing here and whatever it's a formal ceremony that's starting to take place here it's sort of like at a wedding You know, just think about this. You have a wedding, bride comes down the aisle on the arm of her dad, and we walk down the aisle. And what do we do as pastors? They get down the aisle, music stops, and we say this, Who giveth this woman to be married to this man? You know, like the pastor doesn't know. Okay? And the family doesn't know. But the father says this, her mother and I do and then you go through the whole ceremony you go oh okay the, the, the wedding's begun okay we have this in our culture it's not that you don't know he's asking this who are these and what he wants is Joseph to respond and tell him who these are in an official way verse 9 these are my sons whom god hath given me in this place and joseph or jacob says well bring them and i pray thee unto me and i will bless them and what you have here is that it then mentions the fact that he is nearly blind in fact he really not able to see and you're reminded of something previous in jacob's life remember when his dad Isaac thought he was a dying he was as blind as could be this is why Jacob could come in and fix a meal and put on hairy garments and walk in and deceive his dad that's at play here Uh uh-oh we got a replay of what's going on here he's blind and he doesn't know what he's doing But in the whole process of what goes on, you see in the story here that Joseph brings his sons, they they give granddad a hug, they step back again, then granddad's going to take his hands and place his hands upon these sons and proclaim a blessing for them in the future. So what Joseph does is make it easier for dad, who's blind. He takes his oldest son, Manasseh, and he puts them on his left hand so that he would be in front of granddad's right hand. He takes his youngest son in his right hand, Ephraim, and he puts him by where granddad's left hand was at so that the oldest son would get the greater blessing than the younger son. And when Joseph does this, and Jacob reaches out his hands, he then does this thing. He crosses over his hands. And he proceeds to bless these sons. And you see down in the the statement in verse 17, this whole thing goes on. He's blessing the sons. Joseph, verse 18, says, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. You know, Dad, you're making a mistake here. Verse 19, Father refused and said, I know it. I know it. I know what I'm doing. It's not like what I did to my father. Okay, I actually know what I'm doing. I know it. He also shall become a great people. He also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he. His seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day and said in these shall Israel bless saying God make thee as Ephraim and Manasseh and he set Ephraim before Manasseh and you go well what's he saying here may these two sons be the blessed sons may they have a large family after them I just got through reading through all the Pentateuch so I had to go through those sections and numbers do you realize the numbers of the family of Manasseh and Ephraim Though when they're first counted in numbers, they go through all the tribes and they count everybody over the age of 20 who can fight. They do that. They're smaller in number. By the time it's done, you take their two combined numbers together. They're bigger than any of the other tribes. I mean, what jo- Joseph or Jacob prophesies about them, may these two tribes be ones who have many children and be blessed. It actually comes to be the case. They are blessed with a large group, a large family. And so Jacob blesses Joseph's sons. So you have this adoption. So he's telling these grandsons, You're now part of my family. You've got this to look forward to. You've got the status of being my sons. You're equal to your uncles and what goes on here. And I'm giving you a blessing for you to look forward to that your family's going to be uh, the greatest as far as the tribes population-wise. You're going to have a multitude of children. This is what you have for your future. And so what we have here is that believers are pointing others around them to their future. That's what Jacob is doing. For Ephraim and Manasseh, here's what you have in store for you. I'm letting you know this. But I think the most important thing in all of this, what Jacob has going on here is this, that believers recount how God has taken care of them in life as they face death look at what jacob says in the middle of verse number 15 says this and he blessed joseph and said god before whom my fathers abraham and isaac did walk the god which fed me all my life long until this day the angel which redeemed me from all evil bless the lads and let my name be named on them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac let them grow to be a multitude in the earth what you have is a statement of Jacob looking back on his life he says this that the God that is uh, his God when the God of Abraham and Isaac that God is my shepherd who is with me all my days that statement that you have there in verse number 15 where it says which fed me Literally in the Hebrew is this. My shepherd. Okay? God was my shepherd. You say, well, that's the main responsibility of a shepherd is make sure that the sheep get fed. That's true. But the word behind it is a shepherd. One who is taking care and providing both the needs for provisions, but also the protection. Jacob is uh, almost uh, 500 years or 700 years Uh, before david and he could have penned part of this psalm the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he could have gone through and recounted all the things that god had done for him he could even say this that he's prepared a table in the presence of mine enemies i was thinking about that this morning you go who was his enemy think about who his enemy was laban laban who is the one who gave him things but eventually becomes his enemy isn't looking well to him and what is god doing god is multiplying things out for for jacob all of his life there with laban even though laban's opposed to making him have good things great things jacob goes god's been a good god he's been my shepherd all my days he's provided he's protected and and you have this other phrase that's a little unusual here that not only does is god my shepherd who is with me all my days he says this god is the angel who redeems from all evil for us to refer to god as an angel is kind of a strange thing you go god's not an angel But think about Jacob's life. He's had a lot of interaction with angels in comparison to most other people in the Bible. You think about that? When he's at Bethel, he sees that staircase going up and down from heaven with the angels going back and forth on that. And that's God's statement. I'm going to bring you back here. I'm going to take you out of the land that you go to. And in this sense, it was language that the Israelites would have understood. I'm going to redeem you out of that land i'm going to bring you back from the land that you go to Uh, when he does come back to the land you find this is that god gives him a message and he's jacob says this in genesis chapter 31 he's talking with his wife he said an angel in the middle light told me that i should leave when he gets back to the land in genesis chapter 32 there's this little statement that he shows up with his whole family there and he's camped in one place and he looks over and he sees this camp of angels that's surrounding them he calls the place Mahaneham. you go why it meant two camps he saw his camp and then the angels protecting them and then you have at the end of his uh or him getting ready to go back in the land he's wrestling with a man in the middle of the night question is is it a man an angel or God himself but I will say this as you look through the scripture when it talks about the angel of the Lord there's much controversy is it an angel or is it actually God himself there are some cases you go the angel of the Lord is obviously God it's not an unusual way to refer to God a messenger one who brings good things in this case, this is the God who redeems from all evil. He's a shepherd who takes care of you all the days, but he is an angel who protects and redeems from all evil. And Jacob tells these sons and gives testimony, you want that God. He's been the God of your father Abraham. He's been the God of your father Isaac. He's the God of your grandfather here jacob that you're looking at he's the god that you want he takes care of you he'll do it all of your days if you're willing to have him as your god and he's the one who can redeem you buy you out get you out from evil he can do this this is the god you want what he's doing is at the end of his days he's just simply reflecting on the most important thing that these young men can have god they need him more than anything else and so at the end of his life jacob is reflecting and telling uh, these individuals that god has taken care of them taken care of him all of his life and that this god can take care of them throughout all of their life I mean, what jacob is doing is what we need to do with our own life none of us want to consider dying but we're going to sometime for some of us it's more obvious that we're closer than others we know the medical records we see what's coming we look at our age we look at our health And we've gone through this outline this morning, and I just want to put this into question form for you. First off, here's the first question in application and closing the sermon is just simply this. What have you done to take care of your future arrangements? You know, what do you mean? What, what have you done to take care of your future arrangements? I, as a pastor, have uh, dealt with it a number of times and a number of occasions, uh, the fact that oftentimes people don't bother to deal with this. And it causes chaos when they die. Confusion. I mean, what have you done to take care of future arrangements? Let me just go through some things that you might want to think about for the sake of you and your family in the future. I mean, what have you done about making medical directives? Have you written this out for people to know what you want done as you're dying? There's documentation. You can get it from your doctor and the like that you can get, and it just simply says, here's what I want done. Don't resuscitate me. You know, if, I, if I'm dying, just go ahead and let me die because I know where I'm going when I die. I'm okay with that, but you, you need to have medical directives that tell the doctors what they need to be doing. Now, understand this. I'm not suggesting the fact that you lay out the fact that you uh, want medical suicide. They have a thing called euthanasia right now, which is uh, a false term, a good death, because death is not a good thing to go through. But you have individuals that are suggesting the fact, well, I'm going through so much pain, maybe I should have individuals who just kind of put me out no if you understand scripturally god is the one who gives life and takes life okay god will take you when he needs to take you in fact paul understood this in philippians chapter one uh he made the statement uh for me to live is christ and to die is gain he's in prison thinking that he may eventually die and he goes for me to live christ to die gain but then he makes a statement he says for this but if i live in the flesh or excuse me But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what shall I choose? I want not. He goes, I don't know if I'm ready to go in the presence or stay here any longer, because it'd be great to be in the presence of the Lord. I don't know if I really want to stay here anymore. But he makes the statement. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless to abide, to stay here in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming unto you again. He just simply says, if I remain here, it's so that it is for benefit for others. And I have this as a case sometimes I have to deal with. People are going, this is going on for a long time and I'm not sure why I'm still alive. i go this, God is the one who's the taker of life. He'll take you when he needs you to leave. Your work is done. You don't have anything else to do here. He's going to take you out at the right time. But the fact is, is we do need to give some understanding to people what needs to be done when we are dying medical directives what have you done and this is still taking care of your future rangers what have you done about your legacy you go what do you mean by your legacy the things that you want to be used after you're gone and how you would like them to be used now granted the fact when you die it's no longer your possession but you can direct the way they should be used I and mean, have you gotten a will of some kind designating for who and what uh, gets uh, your goods? Whether it be for children, grandchildren, family, church, an organization, whatever it may be. Have you designated, I want to have impact after I'm gone? Even though I'm not here, have you designated those type of things? Because if you don't, there'll be someone who, in the form of the government, will be happy to figure out how to distribute it. Who's going to be your executor? Not your executor, your executor. Okay, you go, who's that? That's the person who's responsible for making sure this all happens after you're gone. I mean, that's kind of what you have with Joseph here and Jacob. Make sure my body gets to... It's laid out here. What do you want for your funeral? You know, as a pastor, I struggle with this sometimes because I'm like, what do you want for the the funeral when you're talking to the family? Like, I have no idea. What songs did they like? I don't know. What do you want? Do you want any testimonies? wait do you want songs i mean what do you want to be the last impression people have of you ecclesiastes calls it the house of mourning the last event that you have for people to consider your life in detail what would you like for people to remember now what this means is this is that you live your life in such a way that it's worth having a funeral Okay? It's not just merely, I plan a funeral and it sounds really good and then you look at it and it doesn't even match what your life is. But the fact is, is if you're thinking about what your funeral is going to be like, what, what would I want to be known for? And so you, you ought to have something where you're thinking through already and perhaps put it into writing what you would like to have at your funeral. But remember, in getting to that point of thinking I'm going to have a funeral, be living your life in such a way that would reflect what would go on at that funeral. But hopefully it's something that people can reflect on and go, okay, this is what I, this person loved the Lord. They followed God. They knew his provision. Okay, I saw that in their life. Do I live my, and and for the people that are there at the funeral, is this how I should live my life? Am I living my life like this? So preparing for a funeral means living a meaningful and purposeful life. I mean, who, what have you done to take care of your future arrangements like Jacob did with Joseph? Okay, these are things that you need to think about. Second major thing is we had that second major point. What have you done to prepare those around you for the future What have you done to prepare those around you for their future? And I will say this, this is by far the most important what I'm about to say here. Have you let them know that there is a Savior that died for their sins? And is one who will give them life eternal if they come to Him in faith? You do that now to help them prepare for their future? And that's the greatest thing you can do for somebody. Have you been a reflection of the mercy and grace that God has given to you? Are you giving individuals uh, that are around you a pattern on how to live your life? What have you done to prepare those around you for the future? Most importantly, they need to know the Savior and hear about Him. But then you live a life that can be a pattern for others to live. And then thirdly, what have you seen God do throughout your life? You ought to be able at the end of your life to look back and just praise your God if god gives you the chance to with individuals to reflect on your life as you're dying uh it ought to be that you can look back and go he was my shepherd here and 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 now i'm going through the valley the shadow of death and he's going to take care of me right on through there okay it might be frightening because it is a shadow but the lord's going to take care of me right through till death Could you declare for generations to come the great things that God has done? So pastor sadly, I often find that people have nothing to say about the character and spiritual life of those that have passed on. This is a tragedy. I find that to be the case sometimes. I'm at funerals I say, well, What will you say about them? That's a you know testimony. I don't know. No, people ought to be say, you know, I heard them talk about their God. I heard them say this about their God. I heard them live this out and do these things in their life because their God was with them. What have others seen through your life that you have a God? So in conclusion, we've talked about preparing for your death. And I would say for you now, start start thinking about it while you're in good health. (laughs) Not when the bad health is coming. These are things to think about. What would I like at my funeral? What would I like for the testimony to be there? But I will say this, not everybody's got a chance to prepare for your funeral because you don't see it coming. I told you a story about Elaine who had some time to prepare for the fact that she was dying with her family and others and get things taken care of and the like. There's another man that was the first funeral I had to do in Massachusetts. A man by the name of Don Roberts. He had received the title Padon, which was an honored title to receive because Don Roberts had done in that community so much for people in the community, especially those that had come to the United States from outside the country, uh, especially from Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam. They had come there to Fitchburg where we were at and he had done as much as he could to be a part of their lives, to get them acclimated to society here, to get them organized, but more importantly, to tell them about Jesus Christ. And all you had to do is say the name Padon in that community. And people are like, w- you, know, you know Padon? He's like, well, yeah, he goes to my church. Oh, you know. they, they would go on with stories about what he did. <clears throat> Padon, at, uh, over the age of 80, was a man who was full of energy and life, health. Energy. He would outdo people in getting things accomplished. I remember we went out one time uh, canvassing for an activity, and uh, he was outpacing almost everybody that was there uh, the 20 somethings that were there. I was shocked when I one afternoon got a phone call, and it was this that Padam had died. He'd gone out to work in his garden, middle of the afternoon, sunny day, whatever. Died instantaneously of a heart attack. His wife was wondering where that walked out there and found him dead in the thing. The thing that had impact on me was I didn't have to do anything for that funeral. As a pastor, I, I was having to tell people, no, you don't have to camp out the night before to get a place in the funeral. There were people setting up tents to want to do this. And you're like, no, it'll be fine. You'll be able to see, see this. And, and for me, I'd only known them for six months. That service went on for several hours with people giving testimony to what padan had done for them had changed their life had given them a picture of what christ was like he had given them the gospel had taken care of things and i got up and i was just like i don't even have to preach his life preached for him and even though he didn't have time to prepare for his funeral like he would have maybe thought maybe the lord would allow him to his life and what he had done before was enough to prepare for that funeral The testimonies, the people that were in those pews were as a result of that man having an impact in their life. And even though he died rather instantaneously with no notice, no warning to any of us, his funeral was something where he was already preparing in his life for his funeral. His testimony went before him his life went before him but in a time like this i can say you need to start thinking now about your end take care of those things that you can take care of and then live a life that is such that people could go we really You know, don't have to work to come up with things to say about this person. We don't have to come up with, you know, make up things because this person lived their life in such a way that reflected God and they were ones who were having impact on those around them and they were individuals that were great individuals because they were following their God. I mean, for you, are you living your life knowing you will one day? die are you preparing others to live and serve God after you're gone you are one day going to die so act now in faith looking forward saying it's going to happen I need to live now and prepare for the fact that it will come and leave impact and testimony after I'm in the grave on those that I've had an opportunity to be around. Lord, none of us in our human flesh are thrilled about the prospect that we are going to take a last breath. But with our understanding that there's a future beyond this life, that there's a Savior who died to redeem us from our sins, that there's a hope beyond this life, a confidence beyond this life, that you have a city prepared for those that have faith in you and your Son. So we're not miserable uh, in great agony that we will one day die if we know Jesus is our Savior. But Lord, with the thought that one day we're going to die, that our time uh, is going to end here, we need to start looking forward to the fact that we need to get ready for that. That our time is maybe not as long as we think. And that we should prepare by, first of all, taking care of those things that we can take care of, pointing individuals around us to the most important things which would be a savior and a god that they need living our life in a way that would reflect a testimony to that god daily doing that because we don't know how much we have as far as life left And Lord, if we live our life in faith like that, we can at the end of our life look back and just simply declare, my God did this and this and this. He was a great shepherd. A wonderful Savior. A good God. Lord, if there's one here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're not prepared for anything in the future. They're not ready to stand before you. They're not ready to one day stand before you in judgment because they don't know the Son. They're not prepared. Lord, if they don't have the Son, may they realize the most important thing for them to be prepared for death is to have Jesus as their Savior and Jesus alone. For us as believers, may we live life knowing that one day we'll be with you, but we don't want to be ashamed when we come into your presence that we squandered the time you gave us here on earth, but that we're living a life reflecting who you are all the time so that when we do die, we've been living knowing that one day we would, and you receive the glory for how we've lived our life and how we die so lord help us to consider a sobering subject like this but may it be a challenge for us to live our life as long as you give us breath in a way that reflects glory to you and a faith in you that doesn't move in this we pray in christ's name amen